0: Several years ago, Fuller Seminary conducted a survey among Christian ministers in America that revealed the following about pastors. 90% of pastors work more than 46 hours a week. 33% of pastors say that being in the ministry has been a hazard to my family. 90% feel fatigued or worn out. That only happens to me on Mondays. Seventy percent do not have someone they would consider a close friend. Eighty-nine percent have considered leaving the ministry at some point. Ninety percent feel that they weren't adequately trained for the demands of ministry. Seventy percent of pastors will be out of the ministry within 10 years after they start. And 40% of pastors reported having a serious conflict with a church member at least once a month. Sum it up to say, being a pastor is a tough job. If you're looking for an easy occupation, become a brain surgeon. Or a prison guard. Or a Navy SEAL. Or the President of the United States. But whatever you do, don't become a pastor. Being a pastor involves some difficulties and some challenges. The Discovery Channel has a hit show called Dirty Jobs. Maybe you've seen this show. Host Mike Rowe, he skips across the country sampling the most grueling and messy jobs. Mike drills for oil, and he cooks hot tar, and he wrestles alligators, and he cleans up owl vomit. Some weeks, I'm waiting on Mike Rowe and the Dirty Jobs film crew to pull up in front of the church and sample being a pastor. They probably decided being a pastor is too dirty for dirty jobs. Hey, it was his first day on the job. A new pastor. And so he thought he would call the church's former pastor for any advice that the pastor might want to pass on. Well, the previous pastor, he offered his congratulations and he wished him well. And then he said, When the honeymoon phase is over and the ministry begins to sour and things really start going south, go to your desk and look in the middle drawer of your desk. There you will find three envelopes. Open them in order. Well, a few months later, the pastor encountered a faction of ladies in the church who were opposed to one of his decisions. And so he went to the desk and he opened the middle drawer and he pulled out the first envelope. It read, Blame everything on the former pastor. I'm in another state, at another church. It won't matter. Say it's all my fault. Well, the pastor heeded the advice and and sure enough, it worked. It staved off the opposition. Well, six months later, the pastor was butting heads with the elders and so again, he, he went to the desk and he opened the middle drawer and he pulled out the second envelope and it read Blame the problem on headquarters. The organization is just too big and unresponsive. Say the reason for your problems is beyond your control. Well, once again, he heeded the advice and believe it or not, it worked. A year or so later, a whole wave of bitterness and criticism and questioning were launched at the pastor. And so he goes back to his desk, he pulls out the middle drawer, he finds the third envelope, and the note inside read, start preparing three envelopes. (laughs) You know, over the last decade, I've had the opportunity to work with lots of pastors and churches. And I've heard firsthand how tough it is to be a pastor. I've come to realize not everybody pastors as good and as loving a bunch of people as I do. People can be mean toward their pastor. So often they end up diverting their own guilt or taking out their frustrations on their pastor. Pastors are public figures. Being in the spotlight gets them scrutinized. Since they're under the microscope, their flaws and faults get amplified. It reminds me of what hockey goalie Jacques Planté, a former standout for the Montreal Canadiens, once said about being a goalie in the NHL. He said, how would you like it on your job if every time you made a small mistake, a red light went off over your desk and 15,000 people started to yell at you? His comment reminded me of what it's like to be a pastor. Trust me, leading a church is not for the faint of heart. Well, here in 1 Peter chapter 5, a pastor comes to the aid of his fellow pastors. Pastor Peter provides some encouragement and instruction to church leaders. Peter informs pastors how they can please God and be effective in ministry while avoiding its pitfalls. In fact, the pastor who takes heed to Peter's letter probably won't need the other three letters tucked away in his desk. This morning, I want you to look at Peter's instructions to his fellow elders as a window into the heart of your pastors and your elders. You should understand what they do for you and why they do it. And in the end, I'm going to challenge you with some simple instruction on how you can help them to succeed. Well, verse 1 begins, The elders who are among you, I exhort. You know, there are three words used in the New Testament that refer to the role of a church leader, a man in authority. They're the words bishop, elder, and pastor. Here, Peter uses the term elder, it's the English translation of the Greek word presbyteros. It refers to the man himself, his maturity. The term elder implies the wisdom of years and experience. Of course, this doesn't mean that an elder in the church can't be a young man age-wise, but he does need to possess the wisdom beyond his years that comes with experience. He needs to be an elder in outlook and in judgment. There's another word used for church leadership. It's the Greek word episkopeio. It gets translated bishop. It's the same word that appears here in verse 2, serving as overseers. The word bishop means overseer. This is the ministry of the church leader. It's his responsibility to look up and look around and be attentive and to think ahead and to oversee the flock. The third word, the word pastor, it literally means shepherd. In verse 2, when Peter writes, shepherd the flock of God, it could just as easily be translated, pastor the flock of God. The word pastor speaks of the leader's methods. You see, a church is not a business. You lead a church not by managing or bullying or manipulating, but by shepherding the flock. Sadly, there are power-hungry leaders today in some churches who are no longer content to just be called pastor. In their circle, the word pastor doesn't have the same status or clout it once did. Pastor just doesn't sound authoritative enough. And so the term bishop is starting to be used. Bishop carries more clout. Before long, you'll hear words like archbishop and super-duper bishop and whopper bishop. Don't you be overly impressed or intimidated by these terms. Biblically speaking, all three words, pastor, elder, bishop, they refer to the same person of the very same rank doing the very same task. A church leader is a mature brother called by God to oversee and to serve. Here's the way to think of these terms. Bishop refers to what a leader does. He oversees. It's his ministry. Elder is the leader himself. His character, it speaks of his maturity. And pastor means shepherd, it illustrates his methods. Of course, sometimes church leaders are called by other names. Just the other day, our our church secretary, Jessica, she received a phone call. And the man on the other end of the phone, he wanted to talk to the head hog of the trough. Jess was shocked. She rebuked the man on the spot. She said, sir, how rude. I'll have you know, we never refer to Pastor Sandy as a hog. (laughs) Well, the man apologized. You know, ma'am, I'm sorry. But would you please tell Pastor Sandy that recently I inherited some money and and I wanted to give the church a $10,000 donation? Jessica, she answered, she said, well, why didn't you say that in the first place? Hold on a minute. I think I see the big fat pig coming down the hall. I'm just thankful people call me Sandy. <laughs> Pastor Sandy. They could call me Head Hog or Big Fat Pig. I just want to be a servant for Jesus. Hey, Peter addresses his co-laborers in the Lord as elders, shepherds, overseers. But then notice how he introduces himself. He says, I who am a fellow elder. Notice Peter classifies himself A fellow elder, not some exalted leader. In Matthew 16, verse 19, Jesus promised Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And indeed he did. Peter was first to preach the gospel and open the door of salvation to each new people group. In Acts chapter 2, he preached to the Jews. They they got saved. In Acts chapter 8, he opened the door to the Samaritans. Then in Acts chapter 10, he opened the door of salvation to the Gentiles. God opened the door of salvation to these new people groups through one man, Peter. You know, when I think of Peter, I I think of Psalm 84 verse 10. There it says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Hey, remember a haughty Peter. He denied the Lord in front of a campfire girl, no less. God humbled him. And yet after forgiving Peter, God used him to open the door of salvation to the world. Peter was now happy just to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. And yet what a huge leap it was when the Roman Catholic Church took a doorkeeper and turned him into a Pope. Catholic theology turns Peter into the first infallible leader of the church in Rome. For centuries, the Pope was called the vicar, or the representative of Peter. I mean, did anybody read their Bibles? Imagine a cocky, impulsive, shoot from the hip, Peter, an infallible leader? Hardly. Oh, Peter meant well, and he loved Jesus, but he was far from infallible. You know, when Peter addresses the other pastors here, he doesn't lay claim to some exalted title or some pompous position. He doesn't call himself your holiness or pontiff maximus. Peter assumes a humble title. He says, I'm a fellow elder. I love this. The God of whom Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom of heaven, he doesn't call himself reverend or apostle or bishop or archbishop or even senior pastor. Peter just says, I'm one of the guys. He was content to be a fellow elder. But Peter was also a witness of the sufferings of Christ. When the Jews arrested Jesus and brought him to Pilate, you remember Luke chapter 22 tells us, Peter followed at a distance. It was a sad commentary on a backslidden Peter. But he was there when Jesus was tried and scourged and nailed to the cross. Peter wasn't some second generation recipient of the news. He witnessed firsthand the sufferings of Jesus, and he never forgot what Jesus endured. All the gruesome images were burned indelibly into his brain. And Peter was also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, he says. Oh, Peter saw the sufferings of Jesus, but he also saw the glory of Jesus. In fact, he saw the glory twice first after his resurrection, but then second. Earlier, at the transfiguration, you remember that day. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountaintop. And there his humility was peeled back. Peter got a glimpse of Jesus' glorified humanity. It says he shined like the sun. Peter saw how Jesus looks today and how he'll appear when he splits the eastern sky and returns to earth to judge the wicked and to establish God's kingdom. Jesus will come again in power and in glory. Peter saw the grueling and he saw the glory. Peter saw the suffering servant and the shining sun. And like Peter, we we all as Christians, we live between these two comings, these two appearances of Jesus. Jesus came in humanity, but he's coming again in glory. Think of it this way. Think of a teenage daughter on the day of her prom. She's having pictures taken at her house that night. And so she gets up in the morning, she throws on her blue jeans and her t-shirt, and she starts helping her mom scrub the walls and mop the floors and dust off the shelves she's helping mom get the house ready for guests of course if you have a teenage daughter at home you realize this is a completely fictional scenario (laughs) this is a figment of imagination here the cleaning part here would never ever happen fast forward though to that night she appears adorned in this beautiful evening gown that cost you a fortune and this wonderful little updo that was a complete waste of your money (laughs) and then the makeup but you got to admit she's absolutely drop dead gorgeous hey she is a servant by day and she is a princess by night well this is like Jesus he's a servant by day He came the first time to clean house and clean hearts. He changes this from the inside out. But he's a king by night. For when the day is done, he'll return to rule with a rod of iron. And Peter was inspired to pastor by both the suffering servant and the coming king. You see, Peter was an in-betweener, inspired by both appearances. As a pastor, there are times... When the witness of His sufferings guides my life and my leadership. Representing Jesus means humbling myself and laying aside my rights and serving and sacrificing my life for others just as Jesus did. And yet at other times, representing Jesus means partaking of His future glory. For when I suffer or when I'm persecuted, I can take heart. I can be bold. Jesus is coming again to conquer and to punish evil. And I'm going to reign with him. As Christians, we're all in-betweeners. We live between these two comings. That makes us servants by day and kings by night. This was Peter, a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings, and a partaker of the glory. And then Peter says to his peers in verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Good shepherds serve the sheep in two ways. They feed and they lead. You see, a shepherd provides the sheep what they need to grow, the proper diet. Not always what tastes good, mind you, but what is always nutritious. And then he leads the sheep. He never pushes the sheep or or beats the sheep or takes out his frustrations on the sheep or drives the sheep. He always loves and leads the sheep. And this is a pastor's job. I teach you God's Word. Faith grows when you read and study the Bible. I also seek the Lord for fresh vision and I try to lead the church accordingly. You see, all pastors have these two jobs. To feed And to lead. And a good pastor never forgets who owns the church. Who owns the flock. Notice Peter calls the church the flock of God. It's not Peter's flock. This church is certainly not Sandy's flock. It's God's flock. A pastor will get off track when he starts thinking thoughts like, It's my church. These are my sheep. It's my pulpit. It's my ministry. Hey, every pastor will answer to Jesus for how he treats the flock of God. Reminds me of the Israeli tour guide who was describing to his group how the ancient shepherds always led their sheep. The words had no sooner left his mouth when all of a sudden the group looked out of the bus and they noticed a man driving a herd of sheep down the side of the street. This shepherd was behind the sheep cracking his whip, pushing and driving the flock rather than leading them. It embarrassed and quite frankly discredited the tour guide in the eyes of the group. A few days later, the guide saw the man in the market. And he asked him, he said, why were you driving those sheep? Shepherds lead, they don't push. And that's when the man replied, you're right, but I'm not a shepherd, I'm a butcher. (laughs) Pastors likewise are shepherds, not butchers. Our job is to gently lead. And as a pastor leads and feeds, he's constantly vigilant. He protects the vulnerable flock from the thieves and the predators. He watches out for the safety and welfare of the flock. This is why Peter calls pastors overseers. Notice Peter says in verse 2, Serving as overseers. You know, usually when we think of serving, we think of pushing a vacuum around the sanctuary or A rake outside, or we talk about taking out a bag of trash, or serving food on plates in the brook. And we shouldn't, we should all be willing to do those jobs. You know, no one should be above doing that kind of a work, including the pastor. But those jobs are not the only way to serve the Lord. I'm glad we have people willing to do those tasks so that those of us who've been called to be overseers can give some time and some attention to the bigger picture. See, it doesn't matter how many hands are on deck and how orderly they function. The ship is still going to swerve off course unless there's someone in the wheelhouse steering the ship. This is why oversight is crucial. And the same is true in the church. This is why pastors are called to oversee. There was a time in the life of our church when I pretty much did it all. On Saturdays, I would type up and then print and then fold the announcement sheet. Then I would vacuum the carpets in the sanctuary and then I'd go outside and if I could get the lawnmower started, I'd mow the lawn. And then I would prepare for the Bible study. And quite frankly, I enjoyed the work. I like rolling up my shirt sleeves and doing. My tendency is to want to do it all. In fact, relying on other people gets stressful to me. Sometimes it's just easy for me to do it myself. But you know, in those days, God convicted me. My reluctance to delegate was a bottleneck in the life of our church. Folks weren't stepping up because I was in the way. And I learned that God calls pastors to be overseers, not overdoers. I once read where if someone can do it 80% as well as you can then you need to get out of the way and let them at it. Church leaders need to pass on and multiply ministry, not hoard it for themselves. A pastor's job is to provide other folks the joy and the opportunity to use their gifts in serving the Lord. Today, with all that goes on in our church, there is no way that I could do it all. Understand, the average church in America has one pastor For every 45 people. Conservatively speaking. We probably have one pastor. For every 150 people. You have no idea. What goes on from week to week. At Calvary Chapel. Our building gets used. For more events. And for more purposes. Than probably any other facility. In the community. This church has a regional reach. That goes far beyond. What's common for its size. And budget. A big part of what we do is enabled by the army of volunteers that God has raised up to help us. And you're part of that. We appreciate it. But you need to know your church staff works harder and is more efficient than any other church staff that I know of. God does more with less through this church than with most. I like to say we have a loaves and fishes ministry, the Lord is constantly multiplying. We give him five loaves, our five loaves and our two fish and he feeds a multitude. And yet let me tell you what's been happening over the last two years. Last year in 2009, the tithes and the offerings to Calvary Chapel were down about 7% from the previous year. This year our tithes and offerings have decreased another 7%. That's a 14% drop in the offering over the last two years. Just this past June, we had the lowest month's offering since November of 2004. And it's no secret as to what's occurred. We're in a slumping economy. Unemployment is up. Folks can't tithe if they don't have a job. And here's how we've responded. I'm praying, I'm trusting God to provide us what we need. We have never begged. We have a big God who can provide our needs. We are not going to beg. We're not going to borrow. We're not going to rob Peter to pay Paul. We're going to trust God, which means we're going to take what He provides and stretch it as far as we can. And then we're going to cut what we have to cut. Relying on the Holy Spirit and seeking God's will, we'll try to do more with less. But my job as your pastor is to oversee. And we can't spend more than we take in. I know that's kind of a forgotten principle these days, but it's still true. As overseers, we're doing our part. As members of Calvary Chapel, we only ask that you do your part and give to God in proportion to what He's given you. Of course, finance is not the only oversight the flock of God needs. Elders and pastors also look out for wounded sheep and sick sheep. Jesus warns us to be on guard against wolves and rustlers who want to harm the sheep. Wolves in sheep's clothing. I've learned that there will always be folks who will drift through with their own agenda and try to garner a following for themselves. There will be people who want to take advantage of what the Lord has done in our church. And the job of the pastors and elders is to stop them. You know, if you're here today for the wrong reason, we're going to eventually find out about you. And we're going to confront you. And if you don't repent, you're not invited back. And then we're going to let the ushers know about you. That you're not welcome. So that if you try to come in anyway, they're going to deal with you. In fact, you're going to deal with the head usher if you try to come in. (laughs) Who's like six foot eight inches and weighs like 700 pounds. And he's going to deal with you. You've heard of extending the right hand of Christian fellowship. Well, we also believe in extending the right foot of Christian disfellowship when it's necessary. You see, it's a leader's job to oversee what's taught and practiced in the church. This is why we're vigilant. If false doctrine invades, if the wrong example appears, it's on me. I'm going to stand before God and give an account. Pastors and elders are called to shepherd and oversee the flock. Peter tells church leaders what to do, but then he also tells us how to do it. He adds in verse 2, he says, Not by compulsion, but willingly. You know, leaders in the church should never feel pressured to serve, but should desire to serve. Remember, God loves a cheerful giver, not a begrudging giver. And this is why at Calvary Chapel, we're not going to approach you and hassle you about getting involved. We want you to step up and express a desire to serve. We want it to come from your heart. If God is using the church to be a blessing to you, we hope you in turn will want to be a blessing to us. You know, anytime someone serves under compulsion, it's what the Old Testament refers to as a blemished sacrifice. You're giving a, a, a defiled offering. You're giving less than your best. And God gets no pleasure From Christians who just go through the motions without the devotion. God wants us to serve Him from our hearts. You know, I've known pastors who've lost their passion for ministry. Somewhere along the line, it became a profession to them. It was all about a paycheck. I read recently where 57% of all pastors said they would quit the ministry if they had another option, another way to feed their family. I don't want to be a professional pastor. I want to be an amateur. And I embraced that designation several years ago when I learned the meaning of the word amateur. It's a French word that means for the love of it. That's how I want to approach the ministry. I want to serve God for the love of Jesus and for the love of his people. We should serve not by compulsion, but willingly. And then not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, pastors should serve, not for what they can get out of it, but for the glory of God and for the benefit of other folks. You know, because of the downturn in the economy, the area of our ministry that has been hardest hit is Calvary Chapel Christian School. And we've had two teachers now who've taken cuts in pay in order to help us out. If you ever needed another reason to enroll your kids, this is it. Our teachers are true examples of leadership. You know it's ironic. Some, some people are thinking, and i talk talked to people. I've talked to some of you and, and this is what you think. You know, if I could only draw a salary, then I'd serve the Lord. While Peter's saying if you really wanted to serve the Lord, a salary wouldn't matter to you. Somewhere there's a disconnect. 30 years ago when God called Kathy and I to start this church. The last concern on our minds was a paycheck. In those days, I would have paid you to come. For a while, I worked at another job so that I could pastor Calvary Chapel. In fact, the first year, I drew a a full-time salary now. It amounted to $14,000. Since then, I and my family have appreciated the salary the church provides. But that's not why we do what we do. We love the Son of God, and the truth of God, and the Word of God, and the people of God, and the glory of God. And as long as God allows me the opportunity, I want to continue to serve Him as your pastor. Church leaders should serve because they want to, not because they have to. And for God's glory, not for their own gain. And then Peter says, Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples To the flock. A pastor or an elder should never be pushy or manipulative or bossy, not being lords over you, but as an example. As a pastor, I know that whenever I have to throw my weight around to get people to follow my instructions or to pull rank on someone, I've just lost the high ground. On occasion, that might be necessary, but I would always rather lead by love and by example. I want people to follow me because they respect me and because they love me, not because they fear me. This is true Christian leadership. Sad to say in too many churches today, the pastor is not an example. He's an exception rather than an example. Here's his motto. Do as I say, not do as I do. Hey, you should know that I not only teach tithing, I also tithe. The first of my income. The gross, not just the net. I teach you to witness, but I really like to personally share my faith. I teach you to desire holiness, but I seek to live a holy life myself. I am all too aware that the stuff in this Bible, it applies to me as well as it applies to you. For years, I parked in the outer reaches of the parking lot over here. And the reason I did that is I just felt guilty. I didn't want to park up close because I wanted you to be able to park up close. I could walk the distance, no big deal. But then the hike through the parking lot was causing me to run late for Calvary 316. And so I had to designate a parking space. And I hate it. Because you know what happens now, my son parks in the designated parking space. (laughs) But but I got this designated and I hate it. I hate that. I need it. I got to have it or I'll be late, but I hate it. You know, I just believe that pastors should be servants, not celebrities. You know, the church is made up not of stars and extras, not of popes and peons. God's flock does consist of sheep and shepherds, but we're all just His servants. As a pastor and an elder, I want to serve my Lord faithfully Not assuming some exalted position, but as a fellow elder. Not as a butcher, but as a shepherd. Not as an overdoer, but as an overseer. Not as an exception, but as an example. Not as a celebrity, but as a servant. As a faithful servant by day, and as a partner in glory by night. And if a pastor serves well, Peter assures us in verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Here again, Peter says what he said before. Pastors and elders are just under shepherds, proxy shepherds. The chief shepherd is Jesus. And Jesus promises a crown, a reward to leaders who serve faithfully. But notice when it's received. It's received when the chief shepherd appears. Now this is why being a pastor should be on dirty jobs. (laughs) Because it can be tough. Here's why it's so tough. A pastor leads, and he feeds, and he oversees, and he prays, and he cares, and he serves, and he sacrifices, and he works hard to do more with less, and he shepherds, and he spends his time running off the wolves, only to have somebody leave over the slightest, tiniest, littlest offense, or to have somebody get bored and seek greener grass, or worse, Somebody stick around so that they can criticize. Hey, pastors need to remember that the reward arrives when the chief shepherd shows up. If you want to make your pastor's job easier, it's pretty easy to do. Just support him and pray for him and give him the benefit of the doubt and follow his leading. And here's a biggie. Enjoy his feeding. Next week, we're going to look at what Peter says in verse 5. Submit yourselves to your elders. How's that for a thought? The shepherd is happiest when the sheep willingly follow. But regardless, pastors and elders need to remember that the reward for our faithfulness doesn't come at retirement or at some specific milestone. We receive it when the chief shepherd appears. And the good news is, that could be today.